Well, please take your Bibles and open them to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. This morning, we will be in Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is is a most glorious psalm that speaks about Christ as the incomparable king. And if you're taking notes this morning, that is what I have titled today's sermon, Christ the Incomparable King. Christ the Incomparable King. Psalm 110, and so reads God's word. And it says, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came down, Father, to save us. Oh, how sweet the sound of saving grace. Father, you have exalted Christ in all your glory. Father, give us understanding this morning. Father, I pray for clarity as I teach this psalm this morning, that our lives may be edified, Lord, and hearts be transformed. We pray all this in your son's name. And everyone says, amen. Now, I would like to start this morning by by reading a portion of the Nicene Creed in its most basic definition, a creed of church history. Church history is a statement or a profession of faith that summarizes the teachings found in Scripture, while at the same time it it exposes and and condemns heresy. The, The Nicene Creed had its birth in the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, and it condemned the heresy of Arianism, which taught the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. It's, it's similar to what Jehovah Witnesses teach today. <clears throat> now, the Nicene Creed is, is a series of, of statements. They begin with the words, I believe. It consists of truths found in scripture about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the middle section, it, it pertains to Jesus Christ, and it reads like this. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He, came, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human 
He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scripture, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Amen. Amen. In short statements, the the Nicene Creed is able to to rightfully sum up and declare what Scripture says about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, what, what you believe, what you declare and live in respect to who Jesus Christ is, is of absolute importance. And so we must ask ourselves this morning, what do I believe about Jesus Christ In a conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus challenged them with a question. Listen to what Matthew 22, verses 41 and 42 say. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The title, the Christ, was was a title for the long-awaited Messiah. Messiah simply means the the anointed one, and as one author defines it, it came to refer to the ideal king who would introduce the new age, ushering in the kingdom of God that would extend over the whole world. Now, for for centuries, the Jewish people, they hoped and they looked with expectancy for the prophets of the Messiah, for a king who would bring peace and prosperity, ushering a new kingdom. And, and so the Pharisee, they were, they were quick to respond and they answer, the son of David. Now why, why did they give that answer? It was a, a common understanding that the Messiah would, would be a king who would be a descendant of David. This promise was made to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then Jesus answers, his own question to the Pharisees by quoting the psalm that we read this morning. Listen to the next couple of verses. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him his Lord, how is he his son? Jesus here is quoting Psalm 110 and is attributing this psalm to the Messiah, to the Son of God, the promised anointed one who would bring salvation. Jesus is attributing this psalm to himself. And the Pharisees, they, they weren't expecting this answer. Jesus was declaring that the Messiah was more than a human king. The Messiah was to be the very Son of God. And with this answer, Jesus challenged their understanding of who the Messiah was supposed to be. At the same time, I believe that Psalm 110 will will challenge our own understanding regarding the person of Jesus Christ. This psalm is is what is is referred to as what is called a messianic psalm. And what what does that mean? It's it's a psalm that, that looks forward to the ideal king, to the Messiah, depicting his righteousness, his faithfulness, his compassion, in his kingdom, it describes a king who will be exalted and established as an eternal king by God and who will hold an eternal priesthood through which he will establish an everlasting kingdom. And it gives us an understanding of Christ as the incomparable king. 
It demands a response that we must engage in as we are confronted with the truth of who Christ is. Now, this psalm calls us to respond with four actions, and if, if you're the note-taking type, these are the four actions. Uh, the first action is rejoice in his glory. Rejoice in his glory. We will see this in, in verse 1. In verses 2 and 3, we will see a second action, submit to his authority. Third action is found in verse 4, and is trust in his redemption. This is in regards to his eternal priesthood. And the fourth action is found in verses 5 to 7. Expect his return. Now our first response is rejoice in his glory. Look at verse 1 with me. And it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Beginning of verse 1 begins with, the Lord says to my Lord. We, we first find an, an emphatic and an explicit declaration to David's Lord. It, it's a clear announcement of the will of God. It's coming from the Lord, from God himself. And if you know, the, the psalm begins with God's covenant name. You, you can see this by the usage of the capital word L-O-R-D. It's, his covenant name is Yahweh the usage of God's covenant name here, it's, it points to his unchangeable character, to his presence with his people, to his sovereignty, his universal rule. God himself, Yahweh himself, is speaking to the Lord of King David. And, and now the, 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 the king of Israel was the highest official that there could be in the nation. And David, the king of Israel, calls him my Lord. He's referring to someone greater than him, someone greater than the king of Israel, David is referring to a descendant, a future king who would be greater than him. And, and the Lord makes a command to David's Lord. Look at the middle of verse 1. He tells him, sit at my right hand. To sit at, a, at the right hand of a king was an indication of majesty and honor. And God instructs David's Lord to be his throne companion, to be at the place of honor and privilege, to sit at his right hand. God declares to this Lord that they will rule together and exalt him to the position of highest rank, to the position of dominion, not only of earth, but of heaven itself. Now, church, our Lord Jesus Christ is the one to whom David refers to as his Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and has ascended to the heavens. Our Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted at the right hand of God. At Pentecost, uh, addressing the people, witnessing the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the, the apostle Peter stood up and he referred to the psalm as he declared, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, the Lord, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in describing the power of God, Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, when was Christ exalted? Now, this 
exaltation. His exaltation happened at his ascension. The author of Hebrews states regarding Christ in in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And it says, After making purification for sins, he, referring to Christ, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Through his death, Jesus secured the kingdom of God Through his resurrection, he was declared king. But in his ascension, he was enthroned in heaven. And God has exalted Christ, seating him at the highest place of rule and honor to the Father's right hand. Now, the fact that that Christ sits in the throne of God doesn't mean that Christ is inactive. Dr. Patrick Schreiner states, sitting means his work is done, but not that he is inactive. Rather, he sits as the one who has conquered and will continue to exercise this rule. Now look at the end of verse one with me. We see that there's a time aspect to Christ sitting at the Lord's right hand. He tells this king to sit until I make your enemies your footstool. The original language reads, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The picture here is, is of the, the total submission of the enemies as they were crushed under the victor's feet. There is certainly an allusion here to Genesis 3.15 when, when God declared that the promised seed of Eve would crush the serpent's head with his feet. Christ is exalted now and there will come a day when his exaltation reaches full consummation. We'll read in verses five to seven what will happen on that day. Now church, along with the resurrection of Christ, we must not neglect the doctrine of the exaltation and the ascension of Christ. His ascension means that he is now in glory and gives the believer reasons to rejoice After Jesus resurrected from the dead and he spent time with his disciples, Luke 24 records this important fact. And it says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They were not sad that Jesus went up to heaven. They returned with joy. And why? Because they understood that it was better for Jesus to leave and ascend to glory with God than for him to stay with them. They understood that Jesus was going to take up his seat at the right hand of the Father and that the gift of the Holy Spirit was about to be poured, on, poured out on them. And we rejoice this morning in his glory because that gives us assurance that he will return to rule the earth. And the night that he was arrested, as he was before the high priest, he declared, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now we, we can rest assured in his promises that for all the promises 
of God find their yes in him. We can rest assured that Jesus will return in glory. We rejoice in the glory of Christ because Jesus conquered demons, he conquered Satan, and he conquered death. Ephesians 4.8 says, when he ascended on high, he led a high host of captives. Now, when a, a king will return from a victory, he would bring home both the treasures and the prisoners. Christ, in his victory, returned to God those delivered from the dominion of the devil, death, and sin. We were once dead in trespasses and sin, but as Ephesians 2 says, even when we're dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus That means that the believer now participates in the ascension of Christ. John Calvin states that by his ascension to heaven, Christ opened the way into the heavenly kingdom, which had been closed through Adam. We do not await heaven with the bare hope, but we already possess. We possess this hope. Because of his ascension and his victory, we now have the new ability to live free from the control of Satan. And although in this life the believer faces indwelling sin, the believer now has the Holy Spirit of God who helps us and intercedes for us. And we rejoice then because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a fruit of his ascension. He declared in John 16 17, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And we rejoice in his glory of his ascension because through it, Christ secured spiritual gifts for his church. Ephesians 4, it also says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. These are the spiritual gifts to the church. The Puritan Wilhelm Sabraco states, if anyone therefore desires with heartfelt love to make Christ known in his beauty and to be instrumental in bringing others into fellowship with Christ, he ought to believe that Christ, who is now in heaven, has received gifts for the purpose of distribution, that these will be given to him who humbly requests them. Is Christ your treasure this morning? Christ has now entered heaven. Do you long to be where Christ is? Do you rejoice in his glory? The psalm calls the reader to a second action, to, to submit to the authority of Christ, submit to his authority. Look at verse 2. It reads, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The text in the original language, it places emphasis on the words, the mighty scepter. This is the staff of a ruler. It represents the king's authority and power. The promise of a scepter from Judah was made back in Genesis 49 as Jacob on his deathbed was declaring blessings on the 12 tribes. The scepter refers to the Messiah. It refers to the king who has been granted sovereign rule. Psalm 49 verse 6 says of Christ, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. 
The scepter comes from Zion. Verse two reads, the Lord sends forth from Zion. Now in, in prophetic passages, Zion refers to Jerusalem, the capital of the Messiah's kingdom. And this verb send, it means literally to, to stretch out or to extend it. The picture here is when Moses stretched out his staff with the Red Sea and the waters parted right before his eyes. And then the Messiah is addressed. Look at the end of verse 2. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The king will be empowered by God to destroy his enemies on earth until he delivers the kingdom up to the Father. And who are Christ's enemies? Simply put, anyone who opposes the Lord's work on earth through Christ are his enemies, and this includes both humanity and spiritual beings. Those who reject Christ are certainly his enemies. And his enemies also include the nation set against him, which Christ will defeat before establishing his earthly reign. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 to 26 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Look now at verse three, and it says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. On that day, a day of power, the king's army will offer themselves into battle. His army will willingly submit to the authority of this king. And the king will be strong and mighty, bringing new life and hope. And so this psalm calls us to submit to the authority of Christ. Now, how do we do that today? How do we submit to the authority of Christ? Well, submitting to his authority means that we obey him. We, we seek to know and to do his will we find out his will by studying scripture and right doctrine will always lead to right living. And as you seek to, to do his will, we, we have to ask ourselves, is there something which the Lord is clearly directing me to do, but I have been putting off? Do not delay in obeying Christ this morning. Submitting to his authority means you're not ashamed of him. In today's culture, we need the children of God to stand firm and unashamed of what the Bible speaks about. Submitting to his authority means we trust him and him alone. We do not seek protection apart from him. We do not seek our protection in our finances, in our jobs, in our position. All of this world will pass away Isaiah 4, 8 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And Psalms 2, 12 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And submitting to his authority then also means that we represent him faithfully. You are the king's representative on this earth. You are his ambassador on this world. We must then represent him faithfully at work, at school, at home. Do not blaspheme the name of the Lord with unrighteous actions. 
Now, when Christ was on earth, he, he was humiliated. This, this psalm speaks about the scepter of the king. Before his crucifixion, the Roman soldiers did not acknowledge Christ as king. In fact, they, they mocked him, and they put a reed in his hand as a scepter, mocking him and saying, Hail, king of the Jews. But beloved, King Jesus was mocked while he was here on earth, but our King Christ will return with his mighty scepter. Christ will return with the armies of heaven on a white horse, dressed in white and pure, to defeat his enemies. Are we ready for that day? Are we submitting now to the King's authority? Now, we've seen so far how this psalm depicts both the exaltation and the rule of Christ as king, instructing us to rejoice in his glory and to submit to his authority. But this psalm also speaks to the priesthood of this king, the priesthood of Christ, and what that means for us today. And that leads us to the third action this morning, trust in his redemption, trust in his redemption. Look at verse four with me. It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the Lord now makes an oath to the king. The Lord has sworn. The verb here means to, to make a promise in the presence of a divine witness. It means that there are penalties for failure to carry this out. It's in the passive sense. It, it means that God has bound himself to this oath, obligating himself to fulfill this word. And it says that God will not change his mind. We can be assured of this oath. And the Lord declares the king to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I think it's important to define these two terms here. Let's start with a priest. What is a priest. Now, after God delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he gave them the law at Mount Sinai, that, that place where Moses met God in all his, his glory. And along with the law, God established the formal priesthood. Now, they had the tribe of, of Levi. The Levites were assistants in the temple, and they helped the priests. And the priests were a specific branch of Levites through Aaron. He was a first high priest, and the priestly order was established with him and his descendants. And what defined the high priest? Well, they were chosen directly by God. They offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. They, they acted as mediators, and they ministered in the altar through sacrificial rituals. They taught the law of God to the people. They taught the people to distinguish between the holy and the unholy, the clean and the unclean. And once and only once a year, the high priest entered into that holy of holies, that innermost place of the tabernacle on the day of atonement to place blood on the covering of the ark of the covenant. Only the high priest was able to be in this most sacred place. And the Lord declares this king a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Who is this figure? Who is Melchizedek. He first appears back in Genesis 14 where Abraham meets him after 
success in battle. And Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe and he receives a blessing from Melchizedek. Listen to what Genesis 14 verses 18 to 20 says about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And so we, we note a few, a few things here. We read that Melchizedek was a ruler. He was king of old Jerusalem. His name in the Hebrew means king of righteousness. He was also a priest, meaning he was a kingly priest or a royal priest. It means that he was both a king and a priest. And there's also no genealogical record or any record of his death as we find for any other major figure in the book of Genesis. Now, what, what does this all mean? T. Desmond Alexander per, provides us with a helpful conclusion, and he says regarding Melchizedek, his priesthood has not been transferred, implying that his status of priest remains for eternity because there is no record of his death, and the Levitical priesthood assigned to a priest ended at his death. And we must observe how the author of Genesis portrays Melchizedek. He is a prophetic type of the Messiah. It's the permanent aspect of Melchizedek's kingly priesthood that resembles the Messiah. That means that God has chosen our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the eternal high priest. As a priest, Christ has entered once for all into the holy places and has therefore secured your eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And as a priest, Christ lives to represent you and to make intercession for you. 720, Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ, the eternal king, is a priest of an order that is superior to the earthly order. Now, as priest... As Christ being the eternal priest, we must trust in the redemption of Christ. We must trust in his redemption. We must recognize daily that without his work of redemption as our high priest, we are in complete misery. In the Old Testament, when a sinner would bring the sacrifice to the priest, he would stay near and, and witness the sacrifice of that animal on his behalf. In the same way, we must constantly consider his sacrifice offered on our behalf. Christ has secured your eternal redemption. You must know that Christ prays for you. You can gain strength and confidence knowing that you have an intercessor in the court of heaven who will bring to perfection all that concerns you. And what does Christ pray for as the high priest? Before his betrayal and arrest, as he was with his disciples, Jesus prayed. We can read 
his wonderful, glorious prayer in John 17, a very important chapter to know. This prayer is known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And this prayer, he first prays for himself, then he prays for his disciples, and thirdly, he prays for his church, for all those who would believe. At that moment, Christ prayed for you and I. In John 17, verses 20 to 21, we read what he prays. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And then in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And so we see what Christ prays for. He prays for the conversion of his people. He prays for pardon and the forgiveness of sin and also for our preservation from sin. Christ prays that our faith may not fail. And he prays for our glorification that we may enjoy the glory that he secured. And even though he spoke this prayer on earth, he lives in its power and effectiveness today. The children of God receive the intercession of Christ so that no one can condemn them. And so we trust in his compassion. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest. Now as Christians, we face indwelling sin in our lives. Satan will try to place lies in your mind when you sin, keeping you from from coming to repentance. Now, it's been said that the Christian cannot lose his salvation, but he can lose his assurance of salvation. And an unclean conscience will cause the believer to doubt his salvation. Do not delay in coming to Christ in repentance. And keep your conscience clean and, and fresh. Obey the Holy Spirit as he convicts you and guides you into daily repentance. Make, make daily repentance a spiritual discipline in your life. Come to Christ when he sinned and ask him for strength as you seek to walk in purity. First John 2, 1 says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And maybe there's someone here today who has not trusted in his redemption. The greatness of your sins does not and cannot compare to the greatness of Christ's sufferings. Christ will not cast you out. In John 6, 37, Christ declared, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Listen to these words by the Puritan John Bunyan. But I am a great sinner, you say. I will by no means cast out, says Christ. But I'm an old sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will by no means cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, you say. I will by no means cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, you say. I will by no means cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, you say. I will by no means cast out, says Christ. 
but I have sinned against mercy. You say, I will by no means cast out, says Christ, but I have no good thing to bring with me. You say, I will by no means cast out, says Christ. The greatness of your sins does not and cannot compare to the greatness of Christ's sufferings. Trust in his redemption today. Now this psalm also directs us to a fourth action this morning. Expect his return. Look at verse five with me and it says, the Lord is at your right hand. We find here now the fulfillment of the promise that God made to the king back in verse 1 to sit at his right hand until God makes his enemies his footstool. We now see the fate of the king's enemies. This royal priest will execute divine justice on all his enemies on the day of his wrath and declare victory. And the king will do three things on that day. Look at verse 5. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. The leaders of the world will be completely crushed and obliterated. In verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is the holy wrath of God that will be unleashed. He refers to an aspect of his justice in which the king inflicts his just and his holy punishment on his enemies. And the third thing, verse 7, it says, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Picture here is of a victorious warrior being refreshed after a battle, lifting up his head in victory. Verses five to seven speak to the reconciliation of all things through the work of Christ. Christ is the incomparable king who will one day return in glory, and so we must expect his return. As we expect his return, we set our house in order. Examine your spiritual life. We examine our consciences and be clear before the Lord. Christ the King has made a provision for us to approach him with a clean conscience. Anticipate his return with joy. The return of Christ means a culmination of your redemption when you will meet Christ in all his glory. Now we therefore live here on earth with the heavenly mindset, busy doing the will of God. His holy wrath will be on display and every eye will see the return of Christ. Are you ready for that day? Serve the eternal king. We have seen in the psalm the, the glory of Christ as portrayed in his ascension, his rule and authority, his eternal priesthood and his return. This in turn calls us to rejoice in the glory of Christ, to submit to his authority now, to trust in the redemption that Christ has secured, and to expect the return of Christ the king. Now, church, I, I submit to you this morning that the Christian faith hangs on the truths found in this psalm. 
Listen to what happened on the night of Jesus' arrest as he is put on trial before the Jewish high priest. Mark 14, verse 60 to 64 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the priest asked them, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. It was Christ's testimony of the truth found in this psalm that caused Jewish high priests to clench their teeth in anger and condemn him to death. Jesus was declaring himself to be the son of God, the prophesied king, the eternal chosen priest sent by God who will come again in glory there's no more important truth or declaration in your life than what you declare about the King, Jesus Christ. What you declare and live in regards to who Jesus is will determine forgiveness and eternal life or condemnation and eternal death. And to his disciples, Jesus asked, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And you've heard the story Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now church, if, if you confess the truth found in this psalm, blessed are you, the father has given you a new heart and has opened your eyes to the glorious truths of the gospel. Jesus is the incomparable king this morning and forevermore. And there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now I end with this declaration from Philippians 2 verses 9 to 11. And it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once more for your word. Thank you for your son, Christ, the incomparable king. Father, help us apply the truths that we've learned this morning as we seek, Lord, daily to walk in your truth. We pray all this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.